And Lord, as we now gather to study Your Word, we thank You for Your Word and we remember that it is sufficient for everything we need to know about You, everything we need to know about salvation. And so we pray, O Lord, that You would use this time to fill us with confidence, to fill us with comfort, to fill us with conviction. O Lord, You know what we need individually and corporately. And we know that through the study of Your Word, if it's not met with the power of Your Spirit, it's to no avail. And so we pray that the Holy Spirit would accompany the preaching of Your Word today. That He would bring the, the doctrines and the message to our hearts. That we may live by these precepts. And we pray for our children as they hear the Gospel. We pray, O oh Lord, that many seeds would be scattered and that in due time You would bring them to harvest. All for the glory of Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Psalm 48. We'll be in Psalm 48 today. As we continue our study of the Psalms, looking at uh, a psalm that is really the last of a set of three, uh, Psalms 46, 47, and 48, all kind of flow together. They've all got a common theme and progression throughout them, so we'll see the conclusion of that today as we continue our study of the Psalms. You know, when I read a psalm like this where they're talking about the beauty of Mount Zion, it reminds me of the fact that there is something deep within us that gets stirred whenever we behold something that we find to be just beautiful and glorious. For me, when I think of the most beautiful and glorious place I've ever seen on earth, I think back to when I was 14 years old and my parents brought me to a small town that was kind of tucked away in the Swiss Alps. It was right at the foot of uh, the Matterhorn, if you know what the Matterhorn is, if you've been to Disneyland, there's the Matterhorn there. Well, I, I've seen the real thing, and the real thing makes the one at Disneyland look, uh, look really silly. Uh, but right at the base of the Matterhorn, the real Matterhorn, is a little town tucked away in the hills called Zermatt. Uh, and being able to, to stand in, in downtown Zermatt and to gaze up at the Matterhorn that was such a glorious sight, one that I'll never forget. But the whole area surrounding Zermatt was just beautiful. The hills that went up around the valley around the town, which were, uh, the hills were fairly steep, uh, but they would give you just this glorious view of the town if you would just take five minutes to, to hike a little bit up those hills. I can truly say that Zermatt, Switzerland is the most beautiful place I've ever seen on earth. And to this day, 36 years later, I, I think a lot about that place and how much I would love to take Christina there someday. But it feels good. It feels so refreshing for us. It makes us feel so alive to behold something that we find to be just beautiful and, and glorious. It's something that will stir something deep within us. Now here's what I don't want you to do. I don't want you to uh, pull your phones out and look up Zermatt uh, through your favorite search engine to, to see pictures of it. I mean, I've seen the pictures of Zermatt that are online, and okay, yeah, they're, they're, they're beautiful, but I'll just be honest, they only convey a fraction of the beauty uh, of seeing that town in person. The truth is, not only can my words uh, not convey the beauty of Zermatt, but neither can pictures, and maybe apart from seeing it, our minds can't either. And you've probably experienced something similar. Maybe you've taken a picture of a sunset or a mountain or a meadow or something like that, only to discover when you go back and look at the picture that the beauty of the picture is nothing like the beauty that you witnessed in person. And just as our words and pictures and minds can't fully capture the beauty of a place like Zermatt or a sunset over the sound, unless we're actually there to see it in person, neither can our minds or our words conceive of the greatness and the beauty of our God, Jehovah. He often reveals His greatness and His beauty in the way that He delivers His people. 
And it should be the testimony of every Christian that this is something that we have seen with our own eyes. We can tell other people about it, but until they experience it for themselves by grace alone, through faith alone, by actually believing in Christ alone, our words are going to fall short. They have to experience it for themselves. The way that God delivers His people. His people behold His greatness as God does things like scattering their adversaries and His enemies who just scatter, who, who run from His presence. They, they scatter for fear of His greatness. So today we're going to be looking at Psalm 48, which is a song uh, about Mount Zion. Uh, this song is called, uh, it's a collection or a set that you can find scattered throughout the Psalms called Songs of Zion. This song uh, of praise follows after Psalm 46, where Jehovah is seen as a God who rescues His people from what appears to be certain destruction. Uh, a psalm in which we're told that God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. That's from Psalm 46, verses 1 to 3. Whatever may happen, the message is, whatever may happen, God is capable of saving His people from the worst possible situations. Then we've moved on to Psalm 47, which uh, centered on praising Jehovah, knowing that uh, our God is sovereign, that our God is King, that He's mighty, and that He reigns in triumph over all of the earth, and that none can thwart Him, and none can stay His plans. Oh, clap your hands, all people. Shout to the Lord with the voice of joy wrote the psalmist. For the Lord Most High is to be feared, a great King over all the earth. He subdues people under us and nations under our feet. That's what we read in Psalm 47, verses 1-3. to And so this psalm that we come to today, Psalm 48, it continues this theme of the Lord achieving victory for His people. And it invites us to be confident in God moving forward into the future in light of what God has done in the past and continues to do in the present. That's really the point of this psalm. That's uh, the central message of this psalm, that we can be confident in God moving forward into the future in light of what God has done in the past and what He continues to do in the present. Now this psalm is referred to again as one of the songs of Zion. We should understand that Zion in the minds of the, the Hebrews, the, the Israelites, it referred to the region that was around Jerusalem. But more specifically, to give it a more specific definition, it was the area where God was known to dwell. Uh, when the sons of Korah wrote this, that's what they had in view. And yet this psalm is going to take us beyond the region around Jerusalem when we rightly understand this psalm. One commentator notes that, quote, "...the outlines of the Jerusalem above, with its great walls and foundations which are forever, are already coming into view." End quote. James Montgomery Boyce that, uh, notes that, Quote, Psalm 48 is in reality a psalm in praise of God, for this is what Jerusalem stands for. End quote. And so we see this as we begin the psalm uh, with verses 1 to 3. Let's look at verses 1 to 3 together. It says, A song, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Great is the Lord, and mighty, and greatly to be praised, in the city of our God, his holy mountain. Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great King. God in her palaces has made Himself known as a stronghold. Zion is the city of God. You'll find it in a lot of our songs, specifically or, or especially in the older hymns or the paraphrases of the psalms that we sing. You don't hear it in a lot of uh, modern worship music. You don't hear that, uh, that city, that name referred to. But Zion is the city of 
our God. And this psalm begins with a celebration of who God is and what God has done. It's a celebration of deliverance. Jerusalem's presence, their very presence, the fact that Jerusalem continued standing was a testimony to God's power to save. Despite one attack after another, after another, she continued to stand as long as God would preserve her, as long as God would deliver her from her adversaries. His presence is what made Jerusalem not only safe, but a beautiful city to the Israelites while the rest of the world was, was falling apart, as Psalm 46 attested, he alone was Jerusalem's sure defense. That's exactly what the psalmist is declaring in Psalm 127, which you've probably heard before. It begins saying, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. In other words, if God were not watching over Jerusalem, you could have every man in the city watching over her, staying awake all night to make sure that her adversaries didn't come against her, and it would all be for nothing if God did not preserve Jerusalem. The worship that God is due corresponds directly to who He is, the nature of His being. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Same word, great is the Lord, greatly to be praised. His praise should correspond with who He is. That's why it's so important to have a really high view of God. A low view of God is going to produce low worship. A high view of God is going to produce exalting worship, Christ-exalting worship. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. How great is the Lord? How great is He? He is surely higher and greater and mightier than our words or our thoughts can possibly capture. And if you're among His people, you know of His greatness. You know of His goodness. And thus your praise should correspond to how great He has shown Himself to be to you. The fact that God has redeemed you The fact that God has done something to save you should inspire you. It should motivate you to be eager to worship Him. And I hope, my prayer is, my earnest prayer, is that that is what your attitude toward gathering on the Lord's Day looks like. That it's eager. That it's excited. Has He not delivered you from your greatest enemy? which we might add was Himself, His wrath coming toward you as a sinner who was lost in your sin. Now many commentators have tried to figure out exactly which specific instance this is referring to, which specific deliverance these Psalms, Psalms 46, 47, and 48 were written about. And while I think there are some pretty interesting and maybe even probable guesses at that, there isn't a clear consensus on on which instance or which invasion this might have been referring to. But the fact is, you know, we don't need to know which specific instance of deliverance these psalms refer to because every child of God throughout the ages knows God as a God who faithfully delivers His people. So this is just one instance among countless instances of God saving and delivering His people. And this is why we come together every Lord's Day to praise Him and to worship Him, to sing, uh, sing to Him, to sing of Him, to sing for Him. The church throughout the ages has been known as a place where people gather to praise God corporately together as a people. What's interesting to note, if you know the geography around the area of Jerusalem, is that Mount Zion was not a huge uh, and very impressive mountain. Uh, If you see the awe that the the, the authors of Scripture have for Mount Zion, you you would think that it was the tallest and the greatest mountain, at at least in the region, if, if not in the whole world. But many of the surrounding 
uh, mountain ranges in the area around Jerusalem are, are actually far, far greater. So why is there such reverence for Mount Zion? It's because that was the mountain that God Himself declared to be His holy mountain. Mount Zion is only great because God is great. Mount Zion is beautiful because God is beautiful. Mount Zion is glorious because God is glorious. Just as Jerusalem was a great city of refuge, only because God, by His grace, made Himself known as a stronghold in that city. That's what it says in verse 3 here. God in her palaces has made Himself known as a stronghold. It's because of Him that Jerusalem was known, therefore, as a stronghold. When the psalmist tells us that Mount Zion is the city of the great king, not in reference to an earthly king, of course, but to God Himself, we understand why the city is great in the minds of the Israelites and, and so greatly loved by, uh, by the authors throughout Scripture. It's because God Himself is great. God's presence is in Zion. It's His holy habitation which He defends without fail. We don't worship a God who has hidden Himself and remains unknown. We know God as a God who reveals Himself in nature. We know God as a God who delivers, as a God who is a faithful refuge to those who seek Him in times when distress and hopelessness would otherwise abound. We know Him as a God to whom we can run, on whom we can stand, and in whom we can find the safest and the surest refuge in the world. And in light of what God has done to deliver you personally, to save you from the just and well-deserved outpouring of His own wrath upon you, I urge you, friends, to trust in Him. And not just to trust in Him, but to delight in Him. To find joy in Him. If you know Him, you know what He saved you from. If you know Him, you know how great He is. You know how glorious He is. And you know how great His faithfulness is unto His people. If you know Him, you know that it is absolutely pointless. It is futile to put any confidence in anything other than Him who is a bulwark never failing. As surely as He was Zion's sure defense, He is His people's sure defense today. He is the church's sure defense. The sons of Korah now proceed to recall the victory that the Lord secured for His people, telling us how and why God is a mighty fortress. Let's look at verses 4-7. to The psalmist continues, For lo, the kings assembled themselves. They passed by together. They saw it. Then they were amazed. They were terrified. They fled in alarm. Panic seized them there. Anguish as of a woman in childbirth. With the east wind, you break the ships of Tarshish. Now, it starts by telling us that some kings came together against the Lord. And if you know the Psalms, you might wonder why they would do that. You might think to yourself, so what? What difference does it matter if a couple or even maybe a few kings come together conspiring and plotting to come against the Lord? Psalm 2 tells us that all the kings and all the rulers of the world take counsel together against Jehovah and against His anointed King. And it tells us how fruitless their endeavors were against Him. They were ineffective to such an extent that all God does in Psalm 2 when He sees this threat is He laughs at them. He laughs at their feeble efforts of coming against Him. Because even if all the kings and rulers of the world are powerless against God, what are a few going to do as we see here in Psalm 48? A few kings in the region gathering together to attack God's people would seem like just a terrible effort at trying to make some kind of joke. But again, we don't know which instance this was specifically, 
But what we know is that the nations that surrounded Israel were always hating her and always uh, trying to invade her, always seeking her downfall. So maybe it's the deliverance that God provided for His people when the armies of Sennacherib attacked, as recorded in Second uh, Kings chapters 18 and 19. Maybe it's the deliverance from the armies of Ammon, uh, Moab, and Mount Sire, which we read about in Second Chronicles chapter 20. Maybe it's neither of those. Maybe it's a coordinated effort, a coordinated invasion that just isn't specifically mentioned in Scripture. We don't know for certain. What we do know for certain is that God was always faithful to deliver His people. Whatever the case may be, all we can say of these mighty kings is that they came, they saw, and they hightailed it out of there. They fled Verse 5 has really an interesting order of verbs. They saw it. They were amazed. They were terrified. They ran for their lives. I mean, to be a king, if you know what those times were like, to be a king required that you be a really mighty warrior. You usually became king by slaying the previous king in that time. So to be a king required one to be courageous and and brave and a, a, a smart warrior. Um But here, verse 6 tells us, it describes these mighty warriors being in such anguish that they're likened to women who are in child labor. Um, This is the lowest uh, position for a king to be described in. Uh, We're told that God even caused a demolition of the most feared military ships in the region by using a strong wind from the east. It's no wonder that these kings were even more eager to run away. They were even more eager to to hightail it out of there than they were to attack and invade in the first place. But the fact is that God has always been faithful to defend His people and to defeat His foes. And so it shall be with the foes of the church today. Over the course of the past two years, the church not only in our country, but in in so many other countries, has been tested like never before. What fools are these petty tyrants who would tell us when and how to worship God? As if they have more authority than God's Word does on that matter. They know. Everybody knows. But these petty tyrants, every single one of them, knows on some level that they will have to stand before the Lord in judgment one day and give an account for the hardships that they have caused His bride. And if they do not repent and turn to Christ in faith for refuge, they will spend eternity in hell, hating the day that they were born. Justice will be served. God will vindicate His people. You can always, always count on it. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that if you cause hardship and distress for a man's bride, you might be a little bit worried about the response of the husband. And how much more concerned should one be when they cause hardship and distress for Christ's bride? Let the kings and let the governors and the presidents and the prime ministers who have caused trouble for the church tremble in fear, as well as those who have supported them. Because hell awaits, and forever is a very, very long time. It's no wonder that the church and all of God's people will rejoice one day when God pours out His just and holy wrath on the wicked. I can honestly say that before the last two years, I had difficulty understanding why God's people would rejoice at that. The righteous rejoice when justice is served. The righteous rejoice when justice is served. Let all the wicked be warned that this day is coming. Proverbs 21.15 says, the exercise of justice is joy for the righteous, but is terror to the workers of iniquity. What that means is that sinners have every reason to just quiver and melt in fear because God is a just God who will deal with every sin. But let it be made known that God has provided a place of refuge from His wrath and cleansing from sin. This place, this refuge, this place of cleansing is in Christ.
the vilest sinner, the worst sinner, the, the most terrible tyrant who comes to God, who comes to Christ in faith, He will never cast out. If you have not believed in Christ, you must know that this is the only place of refuge and cleansing that God has provided. And if you will not have Christ bear the guilt of your sin, you will have to bear it yourself. And if this gives unbelieving sinners reason to fear, how much more should unbelieving sinners who have persecuted God's people flutter in fear? So come to Christ, and it will be His joy to bear the wrath that you deserve. The Lord will justly and rightly deal with His enemies, with the enemies of Zion. She is secure forever because God will secure her. That's what we see in verse 8. Verse 8 says this. It says, As we have heard, so we have seen. In the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, God will establish her forever. Selah. The Israelites were known for passing down the stories of the way that God delivered His people throughout the generations. The stories were told over and over of the Exodus and of the things that happened after the Exodus. These stories were all told in order that the Israelites would, would hear them as children, that they would be raised with these stories, that they would know that Jehovah is their refuge and strength and that they would trust in Him as their sure defense. The idea was that we can be confident in God now and moving into the future because of what has, uh, God has done and what He's promised in the past. We have seen, we have heard. That's what, he's talk, that's what the, the psalmists are talking about there. We, we've heard these stories. Has God ever been unfaithful? Has God ever been unable? Has God ever had somebody get in His way of accomplishing what He desires to accomplish? The answer to all of these questions is a resounding no. No, God has never been unfaithful. He's never been unable. Nobody has ever stood in His way. And we are to live our lives with confident trust in God in light of these glorious truths. And now the generation which wrote this psalm witnessed the same thing. They witnessed God's deliverance just as they were told of those, uh, in, in those stories. They saw how God miraculously intervened to deliver His people and to secure Zion. The psalmists tell us, God will establish her forever. Notice what they didn't say there. They didn't say God has established her forever they say He will. So it's a future act. And, and this is where, if we're following with understanding, we start to realize that this is the new Jerusalem, the, the Jerusalem above that we read about at the end of the book of Revelation that they are referring to here. Until that day, until that glorious day when the new Jerusalem is revealed, this is the testimony of every Christian who has understanding. We've heard the stories of what God has done. We know those stories of what God has done. And it's important that we know what God has done because what He's done reveals who He is. That's why we have both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Both are profitable for us. Uh, to, to unhitch yourself from one of them is to unhitch yourself from a, a glorious revelation of, of who God is in delivering His people. No, both are profitable for us because both the Old and New Testaments tell us what God has done, who He is. These stories reveal things, important things about God, His might, His understanding, His wisdom, indeed all of His attributes. But they also, the Scriptures also reveal for us what God has done to deliver His people by sending His only Son the Lord Jesus Christ, to ransom, to redeem, and to die in the place of ruined sinners who apart from God's redeeming grace 
are absolutely hopeless. They have no hope of restoration with God apart from God's intervention and God's work. God must provide what God requires. We've heard the stories of what God has done, and we've seen it for ourselves in our own lives. That should be the testimony of every single Christian. It's God who made Jerusalem safe. It's God who made Jerusalem secure against the enemies of His people. And it's God who makes you safe and secure as well. God ensures that His people cannot lose the greatest gift that He has given them, which is, of course, eternal life in Christ. And when the psalmists say, Selah, when they conclude verse 8 with Selah, what they mean is, pause for a minute and think about this. Think about the fact that you've heard these stories and think about how you've now seen God act this way in your own life. They are inviting us to consider, to pause and and think about how safe we are in God's hands. And when we do that, it should elicit some kind of response. How do we respond? That's one of the things I love about the Psalms. They, they, They tell us how to respond to various things. So we see the proper response in verses 9 to 11, where they continue writing, We have thought on your loving kindness, O God, in the midst of your temple. As is your name, O God, so is your praise to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is full of righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. It starts out, I love it. We've thought on your loving kindness. When, when you stop and think, do you think about God's loving kindness toward you? Rescued sinners should think often about God's loving kindness toward them. Now maybe you're starting to realize that we're seeing this word, loving kindness, over and over again throughout our study of the Psalms. It's like a thread that is going through all, weaving through all these different Psalms. The Hebrew word uh, is chesed, which refers to God's covenantal love exclusively for His people. It's the faithful love that secures us. It's the faithful love that preserves us and keeps us in His hand, ensuring that we will endure, that we will persevere in our faith because God will preserve us until the very end. The people described in this psalm have heard the stories of God's unfailing love and now they've seen it with their own eyes in a very real, very practical sense as well. And what do they do? They think on His loving kindness and they worship Him. They gather at the temple to worship Him. God has been faithful to keep His promises. God has been faithful to save His people. Once again, how could they not give Him praises? How could they not respond? How could they keep it bottled up within themselves? They're like Jeremiah who says it's like a fire that I I just have to let it out. They have to praise Him. How could they not when they realize, as Charles Spurgeon noted, that, quote, the glory of Jehovah's exploits overleaps the boundaries of earth. Angels rejoice with wonder. And from every star delighted, intelligences proclaim His fame beyond the ends of the earth. End quote. Faithful is the Lord. Righteous and good is the Lord. Never once has He failed you. Never once. Never once has He even rightly disappointed you. Never once has He stopped loving you with a love that is far, far too great for your mind to even begin to wrap around. It's far too great for you to even begin to fathom if you have savingly believed on His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, the application of that is to praise Him and to live your life in light of these glorious truths and let God's praises never cease to flow from your tongues. These truths, these things that God has done to save you can and should motivate you to rejoice, 
to rejoice in the Lord always, that His praises may be heard to the ends of the earth. The psalm concludes with an invitation to walk through the city of God, to walk through Zion, and to consider her beauty. Let's look at verses 12 to 14. As the psalmist continues saying, Walk about Zion and go around her. Count her towers. Consider her ramparts. Go through her palaces that you may tell it to the next generation. For such is God. Our God forever and ever. He will guide us until death. Consider the towers. Consider the ramparts. Consider the palaces. The beauty of Zion, but don't keep it to yourself. Tell the future generations about them as well. Invite your children to see the beauty of Zion. Tell them and tell their children how great God made Zion. Tell them of how He has preserved His city and how His glory and His goodness were seen in His preserving of the city. Tell them why the city of God is great. Tell them why the city of God is glorious. Tell them that it's because God Himself is great and glorious and worthy to be praised. This is the God who is sovereign over all things. This is the God who's causing all things to work together for the good of His people and for His own glory. This is the God who is worthy of all glory, honor, and praise. This is the God who will be faithful to His people even unto death. This psalm should leave us feeling very, very confident about who God is. It should leave us with the confidence that Zion is just unassailable. And it is eternally established. But as we know, Zion wasn't an area that was just contained within the walls of Jerusalem. If if we're reading this and following along with understanding, according to verse 2, Zion is also the joy of the whole earth. The joy of the whole earth. See, Zion is the place where God dwells. And with that said, where does God dwell today upon the earth? 1 Corinthians 3.16 gives us the answer. Do you not know that you, talking to Christians here, addressing Christians, do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? He notes in 2 Corinthians 6.16 that we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. God is building a temple before Christ's return. But it's not a physical temple. It's a spiritual temple. He's calling His people. See, the time came when Jerusalem and the physical temple were destroyed. They were leveled. Solomon's temple was destroyed and and it was rebuilt. But then in AD 70, the rebuilt temple was once again destroyed when Nero sent in his guard to level the city. Jesus had prophesied about Jerusalem's destruction. In Mark chapter 13, verse 2, he said of the beautiful buildings around Jerusalem, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. In other words, this city might be beautiful, but it's going to be leveled. The city and the temple were destroyed, but here's the question. Did God's promises fail? Were His purposes thwarted by narrow? Of course not! Of course not. They they didn't fail when Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed by the Babylonians and His promises didn't fail when Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed by the Romans. Listen to the prophecy that we find in Joel chapter 2, which Peter also quoted, by the way, when he preached on Pentecost. 
pertaining to Zion. We read in Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32, it will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions, even on the male and female servants I will pour out my spirit in those days, I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and smokes, and, uh, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. Paul quotes that part, but he doesn't quote this. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be those who escape, as the Lord had said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. And now listen to how Joel's prophecy concludes in chapter 3, verses 17 to 21, where God says this. He says, Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. So Jerusalem will be holy, and strangers will pass through it no more. And in that day the mountains will drip with sweet wine, and the hills will flow with milk, and all the brooks of Judah will flow with water, and a spring will go out from the house of the Lord to water the valley of Shittim. Egypt will become a waste, and Edom will become a desolate wilderness because of the violence done to the sons of Judah, in whose land they have shed innocent blood. But Judah will be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem for all generations, and I will avenge their blood, which I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. While Jerusalem was destroyed, Zion wasn't. It remained God's dwelling place, and it remains God's dwelling place to this day, and it has always, always remained holy. No strangers passing through it, and with the greatest and sweetest providences for those who are inhabitants of God's city of Zion. This isn't describing Zion as a place that, is, uh, that you can just find on a map. Or a globe. It's not geographic in nature at all. I hope you see that. It's describing Zion as a spiritual city rather than as a, a temporal, earthly city that'll be destroyed in the end. Uh, what earthly city could we say uh, these things about for all generations? None. There's no earthly physical city that has stood for all generations. But God has been faithful to call and to save people in every single generation. In the Old Testament, they're sometimes referred to as the remnant. Uh, they're more commonly referred to as Israel. But what we come to understand in the New Testament is that there's a spiritual Israel and a physical Israel, and they aren't always the same. God's people are simply called in the New Testament the church. The church, friends is the dwelling place of God. Not the, not the building, not the stuff, not the physical stuff, but the people. His people. Those in whom He dwells. Zion is where God dwells. God dwells in His people, the church. The church is God's city. Zion is referred to as a mountain in this psalm. If you think about it, a mountain can't be moved except by God Himself. And a mountain is marked by having you know, high elevation overlooking uh, you know, what's below the rest of the world. From Mount Zion, which will always be kept and guarded secure by God, all is going as according to plan down in the world. We know that God is sovereign. We know that nothing happens over which He's not sovereign. And so we can see that clearly from where we stand, can't we? But our elevation is higher than just an earthly mountain. Ephesians 2.6 tells us that by His grace, God has raised us up with Him, with Christ, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It doesn't say He will. It says He has. That's the perspective that we need to live every day with. That's the perspective that we need to live every day of our lives with. With that perspective, we can continue to be the
the joy of the whole earth, as our psalm said in verse 2. How are we a joy to the whole earth when we're also hated by the world? You might think that those two ideas are incompatible with one another, but what we have to understand is that the church has always been a blessing to the whole earth because we're the ones who have been entrusted with the mission to go forth declaring what God has done, declaring the victory that God has won through Christ, who died in the place of all who believe in Him and who was raised back to life again on the third day to prove that His work of redemption was sufficient for the salvation of any sinner who would come to Him in saving faith. And so we go forth, we hold, and we go forth to the world with this message, the only message that saves, that all who will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. We proclaim that salvation is received by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, according to the Scriptures alone. Paul quotes from Isaiah. When he writes, uh, Paul apparently wasn't unhitched from the Old Testament, by the way. He quotes from Isaiah in Romans chapter 11, verses 26 and 27, when he says, And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. See, what we have to understand is that Israel in this context, this isn't a reference to physical, ethnic Israel. This is a reference to spiritual Israel when he says that all of Israel will be saved. Paul is just pointing out that it was foretold that the Messiah would come from Zion and that he would cleanse Jacob of his ungodliness. That is to say that Jesus would be the means by which people enter into a covenant with God and experience His covenantal love unto sinners. It's only found through Jesus. But Jesus will not allow ungodliness to be found in His people. He must cleanse them of it. And so He would cleanse them of it so that no sin and nothing evil will enter into the city of God. By Christ's work, all of Israel, all of Zion will be saved. All of God's people will be saved. If you want to enter into the city of God, if you want to dwell in the city of Zion, you can only come in by believing in Christ. That's why the author of Hebrews writes to Christians, he says, you have come to Mount Zion, have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. It's not just a future promise. It's a present reality. So live your life with confident faith in God moving forward into the future in light of what God has done in the past and continues to do in the present. If you're a Christian, you've seen it with your own eyes. Consider what God has saved you from. Consider how He saved you. Consider that He saved you. And live your life with an awareness of the fact that all the blessings and all the benefits of dwelling in Zion that we find in this psalm belong to you. Belong to the church. Truly, we are, as we sing in Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken by John Newton, we are blessed inhabitants of Zion washed in the Redeemer's blood. Here are the promises from this psalm for you. That we are in the very presence of God. That God is our deliverer. That God is our defender. That God is our sustainer. And that God will secure us and has secured us in His loving care. God Himself will deal with the enemies of the church, which gives us every reason to celebrate God's preservation of the church. Somebody could come in here and wipe all of us out. There could be an earthquake that kills every Christian on the West Coast. But when people inhabit this land again, God will raise up another generation. That's the way God has always done things. That's the way God works. God himself will deal with us uh, with with our enemies and he will preserve the church throughout the ages until the very end and finally friends 
we, like the Israelites, must be faithful to share the stories of what God has done with our children and our children's children. All that we have seen and heard, knowing that God and God alone will be our faithful guide, even unto death. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your greatness and goodness. We thank You for the way that it is revealed throughout Your Word. But beyond that, Lord, we thank You that Your greatness and Your goodness is also revealed in our lives. So we pray, O Lord, help us to see Your greatness and goodness in our lives. Let us join with these psalmists in being able to say, we've heard and we've seen. We've heard the stories of what You've done, and we can attest to those realities in our own lives as well. O Father, You are worthy of all praise, worthy of all honor. And so all we can offer, Lord, is our best efforts of living in obedience to You, knowing that even our greatest obedience is insufficient for You, that only Christ is sufficient. Only His perfect life lived in Your presence, in obedience to Your every precept, Only His life is sufficient. We thank You that You have transferred His very righteousness to us by grace, through faith alone, in Him alone. And we pray, O Lord, that as we sing Your praises, that that they would flow from what we know about You and what we've seen You do in our own lives. Fill us with joy. And help us, O Lord, to rejoice in You always in order that we may be the joy of the whole earth, faithfully proclaiming what You have done to redeem sinners in Christ. Give us courage, wisdom, and conviction to hold to the mission and to be faithful to the mission. And we pray for for You, to enable us to accomplish everything that you desire for us, for Christ's glory. In his name we pray. Amen.